to another episode of Pod 9 from That Space. Cue the music! This is Pod 9, where we take a look at the good, the bad, and the what is that of film. So, we were going to do Tetsuo yes. this week, but we decided it was too what is that, and also far too horny for our Precious Baby podcast. Yeah, any uh, any horny is to be siphoned off to the secret horny podcast on our network, only available if you hack into the website. I mean, if you do want to talk to me about Tetsuo, feel free to message um, pod Podcast on Tumblr, and I will tell you my opinions. But instead, we uh, we have watched Dracula, 1931. And Dracula, 1931. Sometimes known as Spanish Dracula. As am I. No one knows why, though. So... The reason that we're doing these two together is a strange confluence of events. Yes. Um, so, the film that basically made Bela Lugosi the horror film guy was a 1931 film of Dracula. Yes. Adapted, I believe, from a uh, quite an effective streamlining of Dracula in play form from like the 20s, I think 24 or something. Yes, um, by Hamilton Dean and John Balderston, which, excellent name, John Balderston. A formidable quarry. So they filmed that during the day. They did indeed. And at night... Oh. Um, Carlos... Villaria, uh, Carlos Villarias played yes. Dracula in a Spanish film called Dracula, but with an accent. Dracula. That's, that's the one. Cool. Interestingly directed by an American, even though it was a Spanish production. Yeah, that's right. I'm an American. Apple pie and. Low capital gains tax. <laughs> Is that what George Melford sounded like? Yeah, I'm, I'm from Delaware. So, we're going to discuss the iconic Dracula, and also the Bela Lugosi one. Yeah. You might be aware of the 1931 Dracula, because it's probably most well known for armadillos. Because this was not actually filmed in Europe. I mean, when you say you might be aware of the 1931 Dracula because armadillos, which one are you referring to here? Am I misremembering? Are there only armadillos in the Spanish one? I. There's a. I'm just. I'm just confused because. Um, It's it sound it sounds like the 
It's a known thing among people who know these things. Yes. <laughs> I add as a caveat, which basically covers everything. Um, that you can see armadillos in some of the shots, despite it supposedly being in Romania. Okay, yes. Yes, now I remember the armadillos. They're coming back to me. Those Eastern Bloc armadillos. Communist armadillos. Actually, they were members of the Social Democratic Party, but were liquidated into a bisque. All I can picture is an armadillo in a blender, and now I'm sad. I was going to say, can we talk about Bela Lugosi, but that would make me sad as well. Because basically, after this film, Lugosi was so... He was the vampire. There were actually real-life rumours that he was an actual vampire. So he ended up just being in increasingly terrible horror films and B-movies. Yeah. And kind of exploited towards the end. A little bit. I... It's just a shame, because he was a genuinely very good actor who didn't get a lot of the big exciting parts because he couldn't get rid of his accent. Yeah. I'm going to check what his accent was, because I think I know. I believe he's Hungarian. I'm going to double check. Yeah, Hungarian. I was going to... Because he couldn't get rid of his, un- his Hungarian accent. Yeah. Which works for Dracula. Mm. Not so much for most American productions. No, I, I think it's a shame because there are some actors um, that who went from Europe to the States and managed to make something out of their... make a long career out of their Europeanness. Like um, Peter Lorre, for instance, always had a strong... A strong German accent. Mm. Um, German or Austrian, I cannot actually remember. Um, and there was the. Um, there was he the... was also Hungarian. Oh. Um, but began his career in Vienna and then moved to Germany. That'll be it. That's why. That's probably why his accent's not really placeable in, in any of the three places. Yeah. See, I, I think there's there's a way, but the the problem is people are often um, snobs about horror and pigeonhole it. So he mm. got these horror roles and was fantastic, and defined defined a monster that's been around in folklore for um, centuries. Well, yeah, like the reason most Draculas have a widow's peak is Bella Lugosi. Yeah. I think, yeah, this podcast is officially sad about Bela Lugosi. Yeah. And what, now it makes me think, what if Bela Lugosi and Peter Lorre swapped careers? It's a thought. Yeah. I, I mean, like... we have said previously they were almost in a film together. That Peter Laurie decided he was too good for. That's that's fair. I think it wasn't. I believe was the Black Sleep. Yeah, it was. 
you know, it turned out to be pretty good, but I can see why you'd pass on it. Yeah, like, post-Casablanca, you can turn down a B-movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, Casablanca, working with Hitchcock, you're going to end up getting fussy. Yeah. Not to put Peter Laurie down, he is also, or rather was, also an amazing actor. Oh, yeah. He's just not going to feature in this podcast as much. No, not not so much. Unless, I don't know, he was in some um, John Waters early shorts or something. Oh, gosh, John Waters. Anyway, back to Dracula. Back to Dracula, indeed. I've, we all know plenty about the... Um, the the English Dracula. Mm. And also the general plot of the, of the book Dracula. I think it's a fair guess that if you're listening to this, you probably know how Dracula goes. Yeah. So there's going to be spoilers for a hundred and twenty-three-year-old book and all the subsequent films, because everyone knows it. Um I think my policy is if it's on Project Gutenberg, you can't be spoiled for it. I think that's fair. Hello, I'm Mod, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Hi, I'm Hazel, and I make a podcast with Liz called Bread and Thread, which you might enjoy if you are a fan of food or clothes or other interesting parts of domestic history. We find out interesting facts about things like regional foods, ancient breeds of sheep, um, pretty much anything domestic history. So if you'd like to know why it's illegal to import a sheep into Iceland, and what was presented by Queen Victoria to Harriet Tubman, then you might want to check out Bread and Thread. Find us at Bread and Thread on Twitter, or find us everywhere podcasts exist. <laughs> so you said the English Dracula is based on a very well-done stage adaptation. Yes, it was very popular. Spanish Dracula less so. Mm. The pacing is odd yeah do you know if they um if they made an effort to go in a very different direction less based on the play and more about um what they felt the book was about um i don't know for sure but it definitely feels more Themey than eventy, if you get what I mean. Yes. It, feel, it feels more like a discussion, mm. which I think is a point very much in its favour, even if it is less polished. Yes. And to put my, um, my academic hat on for a moment, which I, which I stole from the graduation clothes company I hired it from. Don't tell them where I live. Dracula is an incredibly discursive text. It's all about discussion. It's all about editing. It's all about exchanges. Because the key thing is about the the letters, the diary entries, the um, the uh, phonograph recordings. Yeah. 
and about people's engagement with all of those. And that makes it a very, very hard thing to adapt um, adapt its true essence, I think, into a film, which is, I think, why I admire the play and people going from the play, because they they take what is visual there. Yeah. Because, and there's loads of strong visuals in, in Dracula. Which, again, it's... It's a very visually iconic film. Yeah. You think of Dracula, you're probably thinking of either Bela Lugosi or something based on the 1931 film. Yes. It's kind of... And I'm including Dracula Dead and Loving It in that. Yes. It's a surprisingly accurate adaptation if Mm. The Widow's Peak is maybe a little bit much. A little bit. Incidentally, that is my favourite Dracula film. I'm still I'm still undecided because I think I I read Dracula um, at just the right point where I when I was a teenager getting properly into horror movies and horror in general and there was something about about the way it was put together the atmosphere that I fell absolutely in love with and so I've I enjoy what I enjoy the visuals of the um, Coppola Dracula a lot because it's just so much. But for me, that that structure, I'm not. I'm just not so sure how you can do it. But yeah, the the Spanish Dracula just went okay. We'll do something with it. We'll explore. We'll do the themes, but also. Very, very camp, very enthusiastic, orderly, oh, working yeah. for Dr. Seward's. I love this man. I love him with my life. He will not leave the Renfield alone. I, I believe he's called Martin. Martin? Okay. So, yeah, and he's played by Manuel Arbo. Thank you, Manuel Arbo, for being the most enjoyable thing in this film. Arbo is our bro. (laughs) He's just... He's so enthusiastic. And so, like... He cares, and he likes his job, and he likes people, and I just... I love him. Yeah... Which does remind me, we were discussing the other day about which version of Dracula would the most would get the most out of a theme park, because the Dracula lying down pose is the same as the water slide pose, and I think we concluded there would be Spanish Dracula because Martin would drag him along and make him have a great time. Oh, he would. <laughs> He'd go to everything, maybe. Um... Yeah, just go on all rides. Spend a long time in the gift shop. Oh, there'll be so many. Oh yeah, Dracula trinkets. likes trinkets. We know yeah. this. He'll get some little teddy bears for his coffin. That's an adorable image. Yeah, I want need to get all all wrapped up, cozy, nice. <laughs> well, yeah, it probably gets cold in the Romanian hills. Yeah. And no, it gets cold in Yorkshire. I've I've uh, been reliably informed that the Carpathians, them chilly. In terms of um, 
Yeah, what's what's really interesting is in terms of visual composition that they've got the same the same sets and everything mm. like that, that. That's the whole thing. Yeah, it's the whole thing. But in terms of composition, I felt it was quite different. There was a lot. Um, Because there's there's shots that everybody remembers from the English Dracula and techniques they remember, and the the Spanish team went for some different approaches, which you know I admire them for, but I'm not sure they paid off as well because I can't remember as strongly any particular moments. There's, there's, there didn't feel to me to be their equivalent of the their own light across the eyes mm. thing. And sure, you don't have to have that kind of you know that that kind of absolutely top ten uh, cinematographic moments because well yeah the reason the English language version is so iconic is partly because. They did all these different things, mm. like the the Morticia Adams lighting. Yes, which I don't know the name for, but that's how most people would be most most familiar with it. Yes, comes from this film, the spooky shot of Dracula's castle that everyone knows and puts in everything is from this film. Yes, it feels like it's one of those situations where the the Day Dracula. That's what I'm calling it now. That's how we're going to have to refer to it, isn't it? Yeah. The Day Dracula felt built on what is, by this point, a strong tradition, especially in the in the silent era of of uh, like German expressionist cinema, which is all about being as extra as you can yeah, with the lighting. Yeah, definitely the... strong hints of Nosferatu. Mm. Definitely, and I don't think there is a horror film made after its inception that was not influenced in some way by the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or even, or going further, um, some of Murnau's non-Nosferatu work, like Sunrise. Mm. Whereas Night Dracula is a lot more... We're showing you the events. Yeah. Like, the way the events are written, I think, is, like we said, is in a way more interesting because it's more thematic mm. rather than... I keep I keep saying eventy. <laughs> I don't know another way of putting it because I'm bad at words and it's 30 degrees. It is. We're dying. Um, but yeah, it's just, I find it interesting that they're two very different approaches that I think do work equally as well. Mm. Like, I can genuinely see if the Lugosi one hadn't happened, but they'd still made the Spanish the Spanish language one. Yeah. I can see that taking off. Absolutely. At least within the Spanish-speaking world. Because, I mean, the Lugosi Dracula has the advantage of being an American release. Yeah. What if all Dracula adaptations had a really enthusiastic orderly? Is what I'm saying. That would that would be terrific. Um, bring back Martin. Bring back Martin, indeed. 
Yeah, the one thing I'm thinking of is this sort of codified horror grammar for a long time. Mm. I, th I think that it would take until this and Frankenstein, the um, it would take until the rise of sort of alternate low-budget horror and slasher movies uh, before we get a different, and, and Giallo as well, until we get to a different style of horror. So do you want to just explain what Giallo is? <clears throat> Giallo is an Italian subgenre of horror marked by a kind of lurid sensibility, I would mm. say. It's, yeah, I guess you could describe it as Italian B-movies. Yeah. yeah but because... with, with a much more like how you would imagine Italians would approach B-movies is how giallos happen. Yeah. I mean, the name giallo stems from the colour of the cheap kind of penny-dreadful equivalents mm. that directors like Dario Argento would have gotten their inspiration from. Because uh, I'm thinking, in particular, you get these um, the emphasis on like on close-ups and having a, a a big establishing shot of a sinister castle and and things like things like that. The nice this kind of tight, controlled angles in Day Dracula is um it's it's really really most of the playbook and when you yeah, it's about 30, 40 years until you get people going, all right, well, we're going to have some more, a lot more first-person shots and shakier... Well, yeah, the language cameras. is basically the same until Hitchcock. Yeah, I think that's I think that's it. That's a kind of... That's another refinement and another twist. Because I think that... I'll, I'll be honest, I do think that Night Dracula suffers from being... So stagey, mm. it may, you'd watch it and you'd think and you'd think, ah, oh, that's the one based on a play. It feels like a play adaptation more than more than the other one because of its a lot of big acting. Yeah, big acting in a small room. Mm. So, at the risk of going on for a very long time about the language of horror films. What do we learn from Dracula and or Dracula? Dracula taught me how to love again. And Dracula taught me how to hate. I learned that you can find armadillos anywhere if you look hard enough. Yeah, that's what I mean. Isn't that the same as love? Yeah. It is, in some small way, the same as love. So, if you find an armadillo out there, wherever you are, protect it. Keep it safe. Nurture it. Raise it as it, if it were your own son. Send it to school. Grow disillusioned with the burdens of parenthood. Stay up late at night worried when it doesn't come home after a big part you told it it shouldn't go to. And then talk about your problems with Martin the Orderly. He'll understand. 
We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>